The Pinball Network is online. Launching Free Play Pinball Podcast. Coming at you out of Jacksonville, Florida and St. Charles, Illinois is the Free Play Pinball Podcast. Here are hosts, Amanda Hamilton and Bill Webb. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Free Play Pinball Podcast, episode 20. I am your host, Amanda Hamilton. Happy New Year. We are back. Well, I say we. Bill would probably share that sentiment if he were here with me, but he's not. He sends his condolences, though, and thanks you guys all for hanging out with us for another year. Sorry, it's been a while. We had some quality issues on our last couple of attempts recording this, but the third time's going to be a charm because I have two very charming and special guests with me today. The first one is one of my favorite pinball designers, Mr. John Borg from Stern Pinball. Hi, Borgie. Hello there. Pleasure to be here. And since, you know, Russia is going to be one of the topics, international law says we have to have a Canadian present to make sure that we don't slander their great names. So we brought along some Craig Bobby with us. Hi, Craig Bobby. Hello, Amanda, and hello, John. So nice to be here. John, thank you so much for coming on. I know that it's a busy time of year for you guys with things kind of starting to crank up again. New releases coming out. It's award season. Are you excited about award season? A work season, did you say? Award season. Pinball awards. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, I I look forward to going to Texas every year, and uh, Twippies are looking pretty good this year for, for Rush. So I'm really not, excited about that. And not just the Twippies, the Pinball Industry Awards, which is now known as the Pinball Awards, hosted by TPN. We'll be broadcasting that live on the 28th, I believe. And Rush is kind of the sweetheart of the season. Yeah. Yeah, Rush turned out to be a really nice game. It had to be because I, I I've been a Rush fan since I was 16 years old. Um, Rush was my first concert. I was actually supposed to see Led Zeppelin as my first concert. And uh, then John Bonham passed. My uh, second opportunity to go see a good rock concert was Rush. And that was probably the best show I think I've ever seen ever since then. That, that is so awesome. And you love music. You're you're a musician yourself. You enjoy a little bit. Uh, the, the occasional bout of karaoke as well. Uh-huh. This one is not your first music pin. Is this the most special one you've done so far? Oh, wow. That's tough. Uh, I would have to probably say yes. Um, I really love Metallica. I really love Aerosmith. I love Guns N' Roses, and that was a long time ago. Um, and that one's that one's still a lot of fun to play. Uh, I like doing rock games. Do you kind of lean towards those more than anything else? Like if if you have the licenses on the table of a rock band that you enjoy listening to and appreciate versus yeah, then I then I would yeah I would actually uh, prefer to do a rock and roll game um, over a, a movie title or a cartoon. Yeah, they're just a lot of fun, especially if I really am into the music. I really like the music. Then I'm, then it, then I'm, I'm, I'm in for sure. And you kind of have to be for those because when you're testing them, oh, my gosh, I can only imagine how many times you're hearing those songs over oh, yeah. and over. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> over. <Absolutely. laughs> oh, I commend you. It's a great game. It's an amazing game. The code on it is fantastic. I know you got to work with Ray Day this time for it. Just overall, the playing, the shooting is so much fun. Yeah, it's the shooting such is a, a fun game. I was worried it was going to be too fast when I was playing it as a Whitewood. I was like, wow, you know, you shoot that ball through the left orbit, you know, and it comes back to that right flipper and you try to shoot one of those side shots, the ramp or the or the mini loop, and the ball's going 100 miles an hour. It, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to shoot. It's a good challenge. The guys did such a nice job on the software. They really did. And the fact that you're saying that it's too fast is saying something because I had a Turtles and that game only played at 100 <laughs> miles an hour. Yes, it does too. Hey, John, so when you're designing a game like like Rush, say, do you have a design in your head or kind of on paper loosely, you know, even before Stern hands you that license or, you know, or is it kind of what's what, what's the chicken and the egg there? Everybody that I know uh, starts a game and develops a game differently. Um, I go right right to a CAD layout okay. and I start laying out shots and and generally, you know, you, you want to start with a with a mechanism. And you want to build the game around that. Um, I've done it just the opposite way. When I made Guardians of the Galaxy, I had the playfield pretty much finished. I had a big opening in the middle, and that's where Groot ended up living. Um, the theme came three months into the layout, 
So uh, that was kind of a, a very interesting and strange way to do it. Um, but generally start with a with a mechanism or some kind of a really cool centerpiece or toy and then uh, build the game around that. The Rush game started out with Neil Peart's drum as sitting in the place of where the time machine was. So that lived there for a little while and, and the ramp that was in front of it actually was sitting kind of up in the air and there was a two bank of motorized drop target that sat underneath the front of the ramp. So you hit the, that target bank and then the ramp lowered to the play field to shoot into the drum. And then one way, um, one day we were sitting there chatting about the tours and we, we talked about the time machine tour and we decided to uh, relocate the drum over into the orbit lane and make the time machine uh, the centerpiece. And then uh, I started to work on the assembly with Elliot, my mechanical engineer, and instead of having the ball strike a two bank and lowering the ramp, we decided to have the ramp flat so you could actually strike the time machine. So Elliot started to work on this uh, alternate design for the ramp. And I said, let's put some lights in the floor and in the walls of it and light it up. And we'll be able to strobe the lights up to the time machine and really get the player's attention with it. And, uh, and then it all started coming together from there. And you're a mechanical engineer by trade as well, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's how I started out in the industry. So one of the interesting things that I found when we were talking to um, to Keith Elwin at the Flip in the Script fundraiser was that he looks at the rules a lot. But he mentioned you're kind of one of the old school guys who goes in there and you're cutting your own white wood. You're doing your own mechs to to an extent. Like if you have an idea, you're going in there and you're going to start messing with it first and then bringing in the mechanical engineering team from there to kind of either work on it or refine it or, you know, kind of play with it a little bit too. Yeah. A few years ago when it was uh, just Steve and uh, John Trudeau and I, there were times when I was starting on a game and there wasn't a mechanical engineer present for a couple months or everybody was all hands on deck on the previous game. Um, so there were times when I would start a game X-Men, I completely developed and built the pro myself. And then one of the Emmys came in in the middle of that project and we started to work on the mechs for the limited edition game. So, you know, sometimes it's like that. And sometimes you've got an Emmy right from the, right from the get go. Mm -hmm. uh, Do you have a preference? Uh, either or for me, you know, like when I start a game and I'm building my first Whitewood, I just want to see what it shoots like. And I actually go and form all the, or all the rails and the wire forms, mm -hmm. you know, that make up the lanes of the game and at least build, the first layer, you know, the ground game and shoot it and make sure that everything, you know, feeds to the flipper properly and, you know, shots are working well um, before I go into something where I'm going to be ordering parts and building multiple samples. You only get like, you know, a couple of, you know, three, three renditions of the game and you're, and you're done. And I've and some of them have been less than that. Sometimes it's like, you know, prototype Whitewood to look at and evaluate and then pretty much going right into what production is going to be. And then the third version is just cleaning that up and just fixing a few items prior to production. That's pretty crazy. Cause I mean, it's not like you haven't put out a few games in your time too. You've done an average about one every year to 18 months for your career. Yeah. Some of them, some of them were, there were a couple, a couple per year. Um, yeah. And then I, you know, in the nineties, I helped others, uh, you know, with, with some of their games too. So I was like, you know, picking away at my projects and working on projects with other people too. Is it easier to design the next one when you already have one that you're testing? Uh, easy to design the next one? Yeah, uh, so when you, when you start working on, you know, you've just finished up a game, you're starting design on another one, is it, do you find yourself going back to that, that previous game you just finished and thinking about those shots more, or are you able to kind of uh, look at it with a clear head? Not so much. It's kind of nice to, uh, like, when I finished Rush, I developed a mechanism for the next game, and I was, gonna, you know, not sure what the what the theme was going to be yet. I developed it anyway, and it's really cool, and it'll end up in one of the next couple of games that I make. So it's kind of fun to get ahead and have something, you know, have something in the in the you know in the bag that's already done and drawn, and and you know, I've already started to test it. So. Oh, my husband's bank account's going to be so upset by that. <laughs> So, so with Rush, John, did you have most of the layout and all, like, and most of the mechs designed before you presented that to the band, or did the oh. band have some input into the? the yeah, I, I started rough it out early on. Licensing was really, uh, really easy. They were very easy to work with, and they were very agreeable. Uh, there was one thing that I had made that was an, an accessory 
uh, it was a shooter accessory and they they put the Knicks on that because they thought that there was too much of that already present in the game. Can't say what that was Okay. Uh, right now. You know, so we just went and made something different. But they were uh, the tribute to Neil. They were very impressed with that. We did a beautiful job on that on that clock assembly. And my mechanical engineer, Elliot, he actually modeled that that molded piece for the clock. So we didn't even have to use a sculptor on that one, uh, which was really nice. And he actually, you know, uh, started the prototype of the time machine shell itself. And then we had uh, Michael Bernard, the artist, come in and look at it. And he added a few a few twists and turns to it and decals and made it really pretty. It is pretty. It's very pretty. And it sounds good. We didn't, we didn't have much problem with uh, with licensing issues and what we planned to do with the game. They were all on board, and I think they knew we were we were big fans, putting a lot of people on on you know a lot of people to work. We wrote a lot of really good speech for them, and they did a lot of ad living to that. There was a lot of additions that weren't on the original list. They just they had a lot of fun with it. Getty and Alex and and uh, and Ed uh, when they all recorded all the speech together. Uh, I think they it was a it was a fun day for them. So wish I could have been there. Yeah. Right. Well, apparently Ed was up at the local pinball place here last week with the rest of his band. Mm-hmm. I worked. I was not there. I'm, I'm <laughs> no one called me. I mean, I yeah. didn't get right? That's for Well, sure. you know, you're, you're a little further away. I don't think the flight would have gotten here in time. <laughs> yeah, last time Ed was in town playing, I had just gotten back from a show. I can't remember where I was at. It might have been, uh, might have been on the East Coast. And I had got back on one day and then the following day was the show. And I just, I was out of, I was out of steam. I just couldn't make it. So I'm still have yet to see Ed playing concert live. So that's on my list of things to do. Very cool. So did you get a chance to work directly with, with Getty and, uh, and Alex John? Like I, I know we've seen that, that making, you know, the trailer for Rush shows uh, at Robertson in the in the sound studio with those guys and sort of explaining the concepts of pinball, you know, modern pinball and what you guys were trying to achieve. Were you involved in some of those meetings with them directly and got and got to know them a little bit? I didn't talk to either one of them. Um, oh, that's interesting. Uh, no, yeah, that was a shame. I didn't get to talk with them. Everything was all all set up. Their their sound recording was all set up and. Part of the you know the time that the game was being developed was during COVID, so Canada was shut down, um, mm-hmm. you know, at several points in time, and whatnot. So, so I do hope to someday get up there and go visit Ed, and I'd love to meet those guys. I'm, I'm I've met a lot of famous people and stars, you know, through licensing and and some of these shows and movie premieres and what over the years. And I'm not starstruck, but you know, if I met Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson, I'd be like, you know. Ah. <laughs> they are childhood, you know, musician favorites of mine too. I've been to tons of their concerts. They they are unbelievable musicians. And uh, I think if you live in Canada and you're male, it's kind of like one of those things that you're just like we are fed that music as uh, as boys in Canada, you know. And it and it definitely has more of a male appeal, I would say, uh, for whatever reason, uh, just because of, I think the progressive nature of their of their rock music. Although I know that you have a lot of female fans, but but there's that that running gag that it's like you know their their fan base is predominantly male and uh, and probably predominantly folks of my age although although they've been going at it for 40 years and, and it was only when you know neil finally passed away that they kind of hung it up and so that's just a testament to i think how great their music was and how it spoke to multiple generations of uh, music lovers yeah they were literally amazing all the way to the end there there was no there was really no lag time they were always just really sharp you know any concert you went to see they were ready for it I thought weirdly they were getting better. I, I don't album, know how that's possible. Last they album was better. Phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. So I did see a clip on YouTube a few weeks ago. It showed Danny Carey, the drummer from Tool, who is also very, very, I mean, he's best in the world or one of the best in the world. He was playing with uh, Getty and Alex and they did YYZ. And that's a hard song to play. And that's a hard song to drum. And he was just right with them. And it was amazing. There's some there's some there's some great YouTube videos. You know, if, if you're not necessarily a fan of Rush and you haven't seen any of, of Neil Peart drum solos, I encourage everyone to do searches on YouTube for some of his uh, his drum solo videos, and you will be amazed at what this guy can do on a set of drums. It's quite unbelievable the stuff that he's uh, 
there's a lot i think it's really fun too there's lots of videos out there now with with people that are watching the videos along along with you and they're giving their you know that have never seen him do drum solos or anything and they're react they're, a lot of reaction videos i guess they call them and it's yeah, I, uh it's they're very fun to watch as well the i think this game brought a lot of pinball people you know a lot of pinball people first wrote me when they heard that Rush was coming and they said, well, I know Tom Sawyer and I know Limelight, but they didn't know any of the other music. And I would start sending some of my, my messenger friends, just tracks from the seventies and the eighties. And they're like, wow, you know, holy moly, these guys are amazing. And just, you know, they went through all those decades. They went into the eighties, you know, and then the keyboard was predominant, you know, synthesizers. The the nineties mm-hmm. and then you know and oh geez it's just just amazing how how talented they were and just for three three people they make an awful they make the noise of they they make the music of six they do and their music is I mean it's still you turn on the radio and you listen for an hour on any of your local rock stations you're gonna hear a song by Rush yeah. it's still yeah. it's still played a lot you know it, they're one of those bands that just really does have staying power I live in the south like. You know, we're we're redneck country here with our Leonard Skinner and all of that. But if you are driving down the road on a nice day, I promise you, if there is a Rush song on, you will hear it from somebody's car sitting at a red light. Yeah. Some of their songs are so ridiculously long. They never they never were aired on the radio. Um, Well, that was that was part of that generation's music, though, because you look at some of the songs from a lot of the classic greats. You know, you look at some of Pink Floyd's songs or you look at some of Zeppelin's songs or, you know, any of them. It's even some Metallica songs, like full length versions of some of the older Metallica songs. They're they're nothing compared to the two and a half to three minute clips that we get now for the popular music or the newer music. You've been doing this. For a while, you've mm-hmm. seen a lot in pinball. Like you've seen pinball almost die. You've seen pinball come back. You've seen pinball machines that you couldn't give away. You've seen the prices from the secondhand market go through the roof. What do you think is attributing to that new surge in, um, in popularity? It's a really good time for pinball, but you know our, our marketing department's been doing a lot of work and trying to you know s- spread Stern's name. You know we have merch now. Uh, ridiculous amounts of merch and it's it just shows up everywhere um craig's wearing a stern shirt <laughs> oh look at that there we go see they're trying you know stern is gonna it'll it'll be a, a household term like you know bally was at one time um in probably the very new future but when COVID hit that kind of pushed everybody inside and a lot of the game operators were taking the games out of their uh their halls and renting them out so if I wanted to rent a game, I would rent a game from Joe for $300 a month and I would keep it for three months. And then I started to get comfortable with the game and wow, this thing really works. I'm not having any problems with it. Um, and then I want to buy this game now. So the guy's going to sell it to me for $3,500, but, and he would have sold it to me for $3,500 three months ago, but he got $900 in rent for it. And everybody was shopping their games out and, and sending them to people's homes and, you know, making money and then purchasing new games and bringing them into their arcades. And then the home business went crazy because there wasn't anything you couldn't, you know, we were all, there was nothing else to do. couldn't go anywhere. And I think, you know, a few, you know, a few people, once you bring in a pinball machine in your house, like especially all these new rush fans that really don't know anything about pinball that bought a rush game, they have a pinball machine in their house. Pretty soon they'll have three, then there will be six. And then there'll be 10 and then they'll be thinking about where are we going to put an addition on our house so we can make our game room bigger. And or they'll uh, just start moving them to multiple rooms. And that's happening all over the place. I have a friend named Carl and he was a vendor for a company that sold us the, uh, the EL wires that line the Tron LE ramps that light up the ramps, the perimeter of the ramps. Mm-hmm. And he came in and he sold us the, you know, he sold us the uh, the piece parts that we needed and the and the uh, the lamp drivers to get it going. And he wanted to have a uh, he he purchased a, a Tron LE and put it in his basement. And he has 30 games in his basement now. And he moved into a bigger house to accommodate more machines. So <laughs> it spreads like wildfire. And I think with it COVID, does. you know, uh, this, it's a good time. You know, Gary's even said he goes, this is the greatest time in pinball right now. This is amazing. For something that essentially was on death's door five years ago, it really is, you know, because I remember when we got into pinball, 
prices were still low. You could still get really, really good titles on this on the used market for cheap. And you mm-hmm. didn't really. And again, I'm I'm in Florida. You know, you you don't see them down here like you would in Chicago because you guys are the capital. You have them everywhere. You guys, all the major manufacturers are there, so it makes sense that there's a huge presence. When we got our game, Mike was like, "Hey, let's buy one," and I'm like, "Why?" And he's like, well, it's something everybody can do. You know, we can get together, we can have gatherings. And and one turned into two, which turned into three, which turned into eight. And now we don't have any more space and there's more games that are still on the list. And yeah, it's like a drug. You don't try pinball. You're either in pinball or you're not. But there's still some people that say, oh, they still make those? Um, People would would, look at us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they still make those. I was in an arcade uh it was actually a bar tavern and there was a south park there mm-hmm. uh south park or a family guy and i'm sitting there playing the game and some guy walks up and he was standing alongside of the game watching the ball go back and forth and then the the knocker went off and it scared the crap out of him and then you know so then i started to chat with him i'm like oh that was a free game you know and he goes oh cool he goes well i can't believe they still make these things yeah and i'm like yeah it's it's you check some they're, of them they're, out. They're, they're out there, and then and then you know shortly after you know after that uh, the barcades started to pop up, and and those are getting huge, and that's making a bigger market for pinball as well. Even like your local pizza places, we have a lot of um, locally owned you know one-off pizza places, or you know maybe one or two of them. It's not a franchise, and a lot of them are now where you used to see like the stand-up arcade games. You may say pinball machine. Our local, we have a bar here that's interesting. But in the back room by the dart tables and the pool tables, there's usually a machine that they rent and, you know, they change it out about every three months. And it's just Mm -hmm. sitting back there hanging out. And it's it's like, oh, okay, well, cool. You know, it's not like I used to vacation on the panhandle. You'd go into the ice cream parlors and they would have the ice cream parlor area and then they would have like a little arcade area. And mm-hmm. the arcades would have three or four pinball machines in them. And usually two of them worked and two of them just ate your money. Right. You know, so, but people also, I think, still think about it in that manner of they're not thinking this game has expression lighting and it has these amazing mechs or it has, you know, this huge display in concert footage. They think it's old school, you know, analog scoring and, and things like that. And it's just their minds are blown when you show them. Yeah. It's amazing what what's happened to pinball in, in, the, in the last 30 years. I mean, since I got into it, um, I started in the business in the late 80s at Premier Gottlieb, and uh, the games are just just have gotten to be so much more today. It's it's amazing. So so and just to expand on that a little bit uh, more, John. So what got you into Gottlieb originally, or what got you into pinball? I guess that's like. Uh, the the running joke it's the most popular question in 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 pinball which is what what got john borg into pinball all those years ago and uh and can you believe that you're still designing these games you know 36 plus years later and are one of the most prolific and popular designers i'd argue in the in the industry today well i was going to school for drafting and plastics engineering and I got a job at a company that made industrial shredders that they would take a, in the largest machine we made, they would take a, like an old Cadillac and take the transmission and engine out and throw it into the hopper and it would grind the thing up into small pieces underneath, you know, it was just used for uh, recycling. And I was looking for something different and a little more interesting to do. And I was just started poking around looking for a different drafting engineering, mechanical engineering position. And I saw an ad in the Chicago Tribune and it said mechanical engineer needed and it had a phone number underneath it. It was a very tiny ad. I called whoever answered the phone. I called them up and I said, yeah, I was interested in coming in for an interview. And they said, come on in, set up a time. So I went there and I'm sitting in their front lobby and the whole perimeter of the room is lined with pinball back glasses. And I thought, wow, this is a pinball company. How cool is that? And I liked pinball and I played pinball. I never knew that pinball was just manufactured in Chicago. I didn't really know much about the industry or the people in it or anything. I was offered a job as a hydraulics engineer at this company for $1,000 a year more than the pinball job. I took the pinball job because I thought it would be more fun and I would get to use more of my disciplines. I knew I was going to be working on plastic 
you know, engineered parts and sheet metal and drafting and, you know, and layout and all kinds of work like that. So I thought it would be pretty interesting to uh, be a, uh, an engineer in a pinball company. And I was there for three years. And then I ended up over at uh, Data East. Uh, Joe Camico and Gary hired me, followed Joe Balser over there from from Gottlieb. We both worked together for those first three years that I was at, uh, at Gottlieb. So how did you transition then from engineer to designer? I went and started to work for Data East and I worked on uh, Ninja Turtles was one of the first games I worked on. Um, I worked on Checkpoint, Star Trek, Batman. Oh, and then I, I was lead engineer. Uh, the first game I took a lead uh, on as a ME was uh, Hook. Uh, and I worked on that with Tim Seckel. And then after that, Joe Camico told me he wanted me to work on a game. We were going to, he was looking at some kind of an old comic book series called Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. And he told me to start thinking dinosaurs. So I created this dinosaur that had two arms like, like Godzilla and, and it threw pinballs. It looked back and forth and then it could bend over and eat a ball off of a magnet on the playfield. And I started to prototype the game. And then the Jurassic Park license came about and Joe said he really wanted to do that game. And, and he asked me if I would change my game into Star Wars. <laughs> well, I don't know. I can't. So I just pulled the whole dinosaur assembly out and I put the Death Star there and then I put a big R2-D2 model over on the other side. So there was some mechanical, cool mechanical thing going on on the other side. And then the game turned into Star Wars. And then later on, I used that that ball throwing mechanism on my third game, which was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. The little creature on the balls and... Arguably one of the coolest mechs out there too. That That mechanism actually also turned back and forth like... The, the head moved back and forth. It looked around and it threw the balls, but the original version actually moved. Like I could turn the body to the right and then turn the head to the left. And he was a lot more animated, um, but I had to cost that out of the game uh, hmm. prior to production. So that was really neat. I can um, imagine this conversation. Back. Yeah. You know, just, sorry, John, we know you've been thinking dinosaurs, but we're going to have to give you Star Wars instead. <laughs> you can't have Jurassic Park. Yeah. You know, and that, worked out really, that worked out really well for me. That was my first game and it's still our biggest run of all time since 1986 when they opened up the company. So that is so amazing. Well, and let me ask you another question, John, because this gets a little bit into when, you know, when you're talking about costing and bill of materials and stuff, you, you know, you often hear of fans or I'd say other media personalities talking about the bill of materials. And it's and it's it's become a little bit more a little bit of an obsession, I'd say, over the last five years as the you know popularity of pinballs grown and people are trying to figure out what makes pinball tick behind the scenes and you know, they sometimes people get this idea that Stern or other companies out there, other pinball manufacturers are sort of handcuffing designers to a certain cost that is that sort of limits them in, in terms of what they can potentially achieve. And I think George Gomez has even talked about this in some of his in some of the podcasts he's been on about some of his own personal design philosophies around building materials to try and dispel the myth that just because you can or could do something doesn't mean that you necessarily should or that it doesn't necessarily mean that you know that that particular design element whether it's a mech or a shop feature will necessarily make that game um a better playing experience for the player so what like what's your what's your um thoughts about you know bill of materials and do you ever feel like you're hampered or limited by what you can design based on a bill of materials or a cost ceiling that you can't you know, yeah, go over. There have been some uh, games where I could have used, uh, you know, some extra money or a mech or something. I try to spread the love around, if you will. You know, so there's a little something cool for, you know, everywhere. Um, but I mean, I think you do have to draw a line in the sand somewhere. Otherwise, it would get ridiculous and the price of the game would get even more ridiculous. I was really happy with the way Rush turned out and the way Turtles turned out. When I when I did Monsters a few years back, there was a the cuckoo clock was molded and it was on the back panel next to where the wire ramp comes out of the back panel on the right side. And you could lock balls in the, the Raven's house, the cuckoo clock. The Raven could come out any time and taunt you, even while balls were locked inside of it. And when multi-ball started, the Raven pushed each ball out one by one. You know, a door would open and go, you got a ball, you know, you got a lot of shiny balls. And and then they would all come out. That was uh that was something that I that I 
really wish we would have had in the game. Um, I think it would have put it over the top. Uh, that was just, you know, such a good theme. And, you know, Adam's family was so popular in the 90s. And if, if you didn't watch Adam's family, you watch the Munsters. So, yeah. uh, but the game turned out really nice. Um, I wish I could have done a little bit more with Herman. Um, I originally was going to have Herman just moving his hands and, and, move, and looking back and forth, you know, with the cuckoo clock in the game and a couple other little additions. Um, I think it would have been more fun. Uh, I we even talked a little bit about making a super LE of that game and then abandoned the idea. So all that could have been in, a, in on that game. Franchi did a beautiful job on the art on that game. That and art been, package is gorgeous. Yeah. I've been a Monsters fan yeah. since I was a little kid. And actually, when I went to uh, TPF a few years ago, we had the whole, you know, the re- the remaining members came to the show and they uh, they sat and they they signed things for people and we got to chat with them. I have a picture of uh, Butch Patrick and I both holding oversized, gigantic, you know, five foot long baseball bats. And then when I saw Marilyn, I walked up to her and I got down on my knee and I, I proposed marriage. I told her I've been wanting to do this since, <laughs> I, was since I was eight. <laughs> I go, I wanted to marry you a long time ago. Oh, and I was eight. that's funny. And she and she laughed at me and she goes, do you like older women? And I said, well, we could talk about it. And and then I said, I said, are you married? And and she said, yes, I am. And I go, we could work around that. And then she started laughing. (laughs) She was a riot. She was such a nice lady. But, yeah, we had a lot of fun with the show and meeting them and just working on that game was just fun. So many episodes to go through. I, I actually got uh, I got really ill when I was working on that game. Towards the end, uh, I was going I was working you know my my normal crazy day, and then I was coming home at night and and binge watching you know three or four or five episodes. But an episode's a half an hour long, but it would take me about an hour and a half because I'd go back and document timestamps and what was said, and I'm putting together this big book or spreadsheet and uh i just kind of was burning the candle at both ends and not sleeping enough and i i got i got pneumonia while i was working on that game oh geez so when the turtles title came up nickelodeon came in and uh had a meeting with engineering and i wasn't there that morning and then i got there after after they had all left after the meeting broke up and george sent a message around to the designers and said anybody interested in doing turtles and i I put my hand up first. I said, I love being a turtle. And uh, so that's, and I ended up getting that license that way. So. Did you have to go back and watch all of those too? Oh, I enjoyed that so much. I I love turtles. I didn't know, I didn't know it like the rest of my team did. You know, my mechanical engineer, Elliot, he, you know, he grew up watching it when he was a kid and loved it. But I started watching those, that cartoon series, those first four, those first four seasons that stuff is priceless. It's just, I watched it and watched it and watched it and watched it over again. And I had so much fun working on that game. That was a blast. And Dwight it's, was awesome. Dwight loved it too. Um, we, we love our Dwight. He's oh, so yeah. good. Yeah, yeah such a nice guy. Yeah. He's pretty cool. And and I mean, that one was cool too, because you had a huge, huge talent pool to pull from. That game just, you know, you had your mechanical team. You got to work with Dwight. You had uh, Mark Silk doing a lot of the voiceovers for it. Zombie Yeti doing the artwork on it. Like that game was. Mike and Tom Kizavat did Shredder and Krang. Mm-hmm. On, and though they were, they were unbelievable. I was so worried about that when we were working on Monsters. I did the. I did the Raven voice because mm-hmm. we couldn't get anybody that, that did it really well. And I practiced it and practiced it and I ended up doing it. But when we got down to Krang and, and, and Shredder, Mike and, uh, and Tom just, just knocked it out of the park. It was, it was almost too good to be true. I, I miss our turtles. I want that game back. <laughs> I was it very was close. So I was very close to buying it myself. Uh, when I was first looking at, I ended up <clears throat> getting the Avengers only because I was a little bit more of a Marvel fan at the time versus uh, TMNT. But but honestly, I was uh, I was, you know, and not being a huge fan of the Ninja Turtles because it just came out and was gaining popularity when I was a little bit older. So it didn't grab me the same way comics were grabbing me at the time. But when I played it for the first time, I was like, wow, this game is so fun. You know, and it kind of just brings the whole theme in and uh, and really immerses you in that world uh, from the animation to the uh, I mean, it's everything that you love about pinball, the modern pinball, you know, with the with the great animations, the call outs, the art, you know, Zombie Eddie's art package. He really slayed it on that one. And I think 
that's one of those games too that there is no middle ground. You either love turtles or you hate turtles, and either way, you're still walking up and playing it again. Yes. Yeah. I kn- I know there were not nice things said to that game in our household because it's fast. It's, it's a fast game. Your games play very fast. And some of those shots are brutal. And it was, you know, you'd walk up and you'd have a bad game and the ball would drain and walk yeah. away for a minute and go crack a beer open, come back over. All right. One more time, you know, and, and it's always just one more time, just one more fix. So when you're designing these games, um, kind of stepping back to Craig's question about the bomb, what would surprise me as a consumer as an item that takes up a lot of room in that budget that I would like if you had to say, OK, you know, this accounts for the cabin. a lot more than you think oh, I could. Oh, the, my God. With the, the price cabinet. of plywood, I could imagine. <laughs> Got to have the cabinet. You know, the, the CPU in the system is is not uh, is not horrifically priced. Um, it's just the whole makeup of the game. There's just everything, you know, all the little metal parts and things that we buy, all the little brackets and stuff that used to be. 30 cents are now two dollars and 30 cents um it's really hard to you know we're always looking for good pricing on parts you know when we order them and you know we're always trying to engineer things so that they cost a little less we're always trying to you know the the, the bomb keeps growing and we keep trying to engineer stuff and and be smarter about what we do you know what we draw and, and what we dream up and how much it's, is it going to cost in the end and try to you know get to that point before it's too late. Sometimes you get lucky if you're working on a game and you've been on it for a while and you're kind of getting a little bit too close to the end to go back and take money out after you find out how much it costs and then they say, hey, let's just make it this way anyway. You know, they'll, they may they may eat you know fifty dollars of bill of material costs or they may make you go back and take out light bulbs and cable clamps and little things and stuff and just try to and try to find it. But I, I still think, uh, you know, it's a business and I think you have to draw a line in the sand and you have to try to keep the prices down. Um, you know, when you walk in the store and you see a, a toy that's $99.99 and then you see one that's $9.99, you know, you're more apt to buy $9.99. Um, Absolutely. You know, and just so, you know, we don't want to price ourselves out of the market. But, you know, we've been making uh, we've been making the pin, too, which is a little less of a game, you know, for a less of a price. But I think people just like all the bells and whistles and toys and, and you know. They 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 may like the pro and the pro may suffice, but you know they want those extra toys that are on the premium and the LE. Um, Absolutely. I'd like to see uh, more super LEs in the future. Um, I don't. I like can't afford them. them. <laughs> I know. I know they're ridiculously expensive. They are nice to look at though, for and play. Yeah, I mean, they are beautiful. I mean, how much do you get for kidneys these days? Has that price gone yeah, up too? Uh, I yeah, might be yeah. able to fund yeah. one or two. <laughs> How many children do you have? Just, just the one, but I, I'm hoping that her kidney will replace mine after mine fails from donating the other one. So. <laughs> Some arms and legs. Yeah, she's yeah. got 10 fingers and 10 toes. She doesn't need all of those. Come on. Yeah. I'll get you, I'll get you the topper. Yeah, exactly. It depends on the game. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say we, we have a Mando topper and that thing is cool. That thing is so cool. Dwight did a fantastic job. I know his son worked on a lot of that too. That thing is It's pretty rad. It is yeah. very very cool and I'm very excited to see what you guys do moving forward cuz I mean now you got you can't What's that rush chopper like, John? We want to know what the rush chopper is going to be like. It, it's stunning. It's very is pretty. It? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um yeah, I think everyone's going to like it. It it's Getty Lee. He goes and tackles you from the top of the game. But you only get them for a limited time, and then whoever no. bought the topper next, they ship them. <laughs> no, if it was if Getty was up there, it would have been have to been it would have have to have been taller than the the size of the topper we're allowed to make. You know, I would I would have made Getty really big. So tell us something else here, John, about this, if, if you can. Like, so obviously the game came out last year, and the topper and some of the other accessories for this this game, like a shooter rod and, and maybe some of the other things that you might see, like uh, armor, um, yeah. you know, that, that are designed for it. It's it's uh, it's taking longer, it seems, every release, no matter what the title is, to get the full package of accessories uh, released. They certainly don't typically come out at the same time. So what's been some of the delays that you're aware of with something like a rush topper and, and or even like, you know, with Keith Elwin's Godzilla, I don't, I don't know if you can speak to that one either. That's another one where it's another popular machine where people, the game's been out for over a year and still no, 
Topper. Um, because is, that Topper shoots wonderful. laser beams and he has to be able to, Stern's legal team is still working <laughs> on the disclaimer for when you get shot by the Godzilla right. laser. <laughs> so what um, are the, some of the things that delay that, uh, John, that you know? Or is it, or is it a calculated delay by, by Stern? Uh, no, not necessarily. Maybe mainly just um, uh, they're trying to catch up on back orders of, of, of games themselves um you know people got their rush that hadn't even gotten their mandalorian yet you know i heard stories like that and uh they're trying to catch up on the back orders and but they are going to go back and start making toppers and expression lights and whatnot very shortly um i would imagine that godzilla and rush they're both done they're both ready to go it's just a matter of when they're going to start and but i think they're going to build them they'll probably build them simultaneously they'll be very close together Got it. So I know, I know there, I know there, yeah. Save your pennies. Part procurement is, you know, that's, that's an issue. You know, sometimes we'll run out of a couple of parts and, you know, that stops the whole show and then games will start to line up, you know, games that need three parts, you know, they will, they'll start lining them up along, along the fence by part sales. And, and then once that comes in, then they're, they're knocking games out like crazy and boxing like crazy. So the procurement issues too, pretty amazing what our, what our purchasing department does and how they get all those things in. And if you've ever worked on a pinball machine or stuck your head under these things, I mean, there are thousands of parts that go into these things. So it is quite amazing that they can pull them all together. And how'd you like to be putting a machine like that together? And then you run out of one little part, like, like you said, which slows the whole thing down for for all of them, right? And you have to have a CPU or the game is not as much fun to play. That's yeah. what I've heard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So talk to us a little bit too, John, um, if you wouldn't mind, yeah, about the software on these games these days. Because, you know, beyond what people are seeing on the on the play field, there's, there's another big thing going on under the hood which you know in the modern era which is you know which a lot of people argue is is equally if not more important and that is sort of the code or the rule set of these games which are being driven by a hard-working cpu under the hood so you worked on, like with this game with raymond davidson and tim sexton on rush what what was it like working with those two guys you know ray day of course being the number one player in the world and and tim who's become quite proficient himself in the world of pinball programming how much influence that those guys have over the rules of Rush and how collaborative was it to work with those guys? Um, they had a lot of leeway as to what they wanted to do. Um, Tim didn't come on for quite a while because he was working on Led Zeppelin. When he did finally come on to Rush, he bounced back to Zeppelin several times here and there. So I was working on the game and already had a prototype built up and I was writing up game rules and I wrote a bunch of the modes um, and figured out how Far Cry would work and how the uh, the Rush Hurry Up Bastille Day would work. And I started writing rules, but I was halfway, not even halfway. And then Tim came on and he started to finish up, you know, some of the modes. And then Raymond came on probably a month or so afterwards. And then the two of them collaborating, they just they just knocked it out of the park. Uh, I wrote the the first challenge mode where you're shooting the different colored planets, the first Cygnus X1 mode. And then Tim and Raymond came up with the second one with the, the, the crazy flipper combinations. And I didn't want to know what they were doing. I wanted to be surprised by it because I figured it's going to be great. So when I finally got to, when I finally, when that finally came into the code and I got to play it, I was like, wow, this is awesome. And I have a, a neighbor that isn't a big pinball player, but I explained it to him very well and let him try it a few times. And he got pretty far into it. I think he got like six or seven levels in. He was, I was amazed at how well he, he did it first time in but the guys did a great job and then in the the video department the animations are fantastic and uh you know everything's synced up really well you know when music's playing and you're seeing you know getty singing um just so many so many so many people and so many hours went into this it's just it's uh it's ridiculous and the rule set on this game you get lost in it i mean there's just so much going on and so many you know different ways of accumulating and enhancing your your scoring uh, you know, during multi-balls and whatnot, collecting record colors and things and, you know, going back in time. And there were a few things that we left off the game. Uh, Far Cry was going to be Roll the Bones, and Roll the Bones was one of the songs that uh, we had to mix in the beginning. We, we, had to, we, had to, we had to decide on a certain number of songs, and there were 
there were four more picked and one of them was roll the bone. So I put a large die up on top over the, the double scoop assembly. And so that was when you went into that mode, you would be shooting the die and it would, it would, the die would, uh, the pips on the die would light up to dictate how many millions of points the jackpots were, you know, so we tinkered with that for a little while. And then we abandoned that when we lost the song. Um, but there are still dice on the, that plastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, plastic there well and so it must have been so hard to come up with a list of songs that because uh, there's so many classic rush songs there that i'm you sure could, you wanted to throw in you could take all those songs and just discard all all 16 of them 17 yeah. of them and you could pick you know you could pick more songs and you could make that game again and it would still be awesome and all the tracks that they have it's it's ridiculous when the game first came out and it was finally available at the distributor up here in canada i went to go try it but they had a pro and i and i i i didn't want to you know they're expensive machines i didn't really want to like it i'm like okay i like rush it's great (laughs) i'm in a hope that this is thing isn't like gonna blow my doors off because i i don't want to spend more money godzilla had already come out i'm like i'm committed to godzilla i cannot get a second machine Not now, right? And so, anyway, I, I put it in, and the first game that came up, I think, just randomly was Far Cry, and I was so blown away by that song. Like, I'd liked Far Cry, but I hadn't heard it in a while. Mm-hmm. In combination with playing pinball on with that song, I was like, my God, this is a great song. And you kind of, there's something about pinball and rock music that just, the two just go so well together, and even with, you know, with Keith Elwin's Iron Maiden, I'm not a huge Maiden fan, but as soon as I start playing that machine, it, it, I would, I'm just blown away by how some of these, you know, some of these genres and particularly rock and metal go so well with, with pinball and just enhance, like the two enhance each other, you know, um, so beautifully. And that, that, again, that, uh, that song Far Cry and, and the Rush game, it's like, it was the perfect song choice in my in my opinion it's so i went i went back and i put that on my playlist right away i'm like why am i not listening to this song it's fantastic you know and there's so many songs like that 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 you guys chose from the stuff from signals to tom sawyer of course is one of the more more popular songs um such a great catalog of stuff yeah in in far cry uh if you remember the video there's rolling seas and there's a big long black pier that kind of goes out in the ocean and there's the baby crib at the end and lightning keeps coming down and striking it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I was going to, I was going to do that mode prior to when uh, roll the bones was at the scoop. Um, I was going to have things coming down that black pier and it would get to a certain line and then it would disappear. So you had to shoot, try to shoot a jackpot, a lit shot and score a jackpot. And then lightning would come down and strike these items on the pier that were coming toward you. And you would try to collect as many of them as you could during the during the feature. Um, then Far Cry ended up becoming the the double scoop multi ball. Oh, and there's another funny story about that. The the double scoop. There was a scoop over on the left side where the drop target bank is, and then the scoop in uh, the center scoop, uh, the one that fires back at your flipper that's right in the front in the middle of the playfield. So when the when that multi ball started, those two scoops fired balls out simultaneously at the left and the right flipper, not the 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 right and the upper flipper so when we, when you'd shoot that orbit shot and you'd miss the ramp or the upper loop you would hit the pop bumper and tim said hey can we put a hole there i'm like so, yeah. we, so we, we cut a hole in the play field there and it didn't ruin the shot into the up kicker uh next to the time machine so uh, uh so then i we redrew the scoop assembly and and had the balls kicking out you know to the right and the second one to the bottom and then i had this whole whole open area over on the left so we you know gary likes drop targets and he said put some drop targets in there so i'm like i didn't want to just put a drop target back there i wanted to make it a play feature you know knock down the drop targets and go get this thing that's behind it um so that's how that all turned out i love how collaborative it seems like the whole team is even if people aren't working necessarily on that you know quote unquote project that everyone or that it's it's shown around to the to to Stern in general, I think, mm-hmm. and people that are interested in in the theme or on what you're doing at that time and offer their opinion and and then you can sort of take or leave that. I think it's I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, when I come up with something you know that I'm excited about, I'll go over on the other side of the building and I'll grab Gary and Ryan and John Buscaglia and say, Hey, can I check this out? Yeah, um, yeah. 
So you're not working in a bubble, in other words. Like it really is a very, very much a team effort, even outside of the rush, quote unquote, team, which is which is awesome, which can only make only make things better. Right. Sure. And we've heard, I think, from a number of Stern employees that George Gomez has been huge in orchestrating that and kind of changing that culture, especially with people like yourself who have been in pinball forever and ever where it used to be you know, this is mine and I don't want you to see it because you might steal my ideas and it's my livelihood against yours. And, yeah, and, and kind of, I, I couldn't yeah. really see you as that, but I know that there were yeah. designers I'm that were like that. Same team, same team, you know? Yeah. 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 My paychecks came from the same account as yours. I want to succeed. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. So moving away from pinball, Bill did request that I ask you a question. What are your top three favorite BMX bikes? Mine? <laughs> yours. Uh, Ones that I own or ones or just BMX bikes in general? Let's go with in general. He didn't okay, specify. Uh, uh, I have a, a 1980 JMC, uh, Jim Milton Corporation manufactured uh, not huge numbers of them, but uh, they were very popular. They were very lightweight and they broke when you did crazy things like I did on them. And they're very sought after today. I actually was at a, a BMX show in Rockford last summer, and I got to meet the guy. Uh, his name is Harry Larry, and he rode for JMC. That was his first his first factory gig, and uh, he just you know he was on the cover of magazines and stuff like that. And when I met him, I said you know my my name is John. I've been a huge fan of yours for years. It's a pleasure to finally get to meet you. I go back in the day. I go if you looked in my room, there was a Led Zeppelin poster. And then there was a picture of Harry Larry doing some crazy jump on his bike. And then there was, and then there was a Rush poster next to it. I go, it was Led Zeppelin, Rush, and Harry Larry. And he goes, wow, man. He goes, thanks a lot. That's really awesome. So, yeah, it was kind of cool to meet him. Uh, so, JMC is one. Race Incorporated is a second one. It was an aluminum frame that was, like, you know, way ahead of its time and really cool looking. Amazing finishes. Uh, and then my third favorite bike, Redline, uh, is my third favorite bike. And that's still very popular today. Redline's been a big company for a long time in the States. Bill would be nerding out right now. He, yeah. he just, yeah, he found his childhood BMX and I don't know what type it is. I apologize, but he was like, you have to ask him this because he's tied up with a different obligation. So he wasn't able to join us. And I was like, okay, uh, I'll, I guess I'll, I can ask that one for you. I'll send you a picture of my collection and you can send it to him. Yeah, definitely. I I know he would appreciate that. That would be cool. So I know that you are excited about the mech you're working on. Are you excited mm-hmm. about your next game as much as you were about Rush? I am working on two simultaneously right now. Ooh. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I'm excited about both of them, actually. Yeah, that so makes the me answer excited. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what, is, what is it? What's your favorite game? And the correct response is the next one always the next one yes oh yeah you did ask me a while ago did you ask me what my favorite game was no but i will what's your favorite game yeah um yeah no that was the bmx bike question uh my favorite game i think my favorite games right now are uh rush tron metallica and iron man and walking dead you're a little biased towards your own work john i'm noticing there's a common theme here i'm noticing (laughs) yeah my my game my game (laughs) I like that Avengers that's sitting behind you. I'm I'm an Avengers fan. (laughs) See, that's part of the reason my room is so dark, too, is I have two JJPs sitting behind me. So it's like, can't show those. Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) It's fine. I know. It's fine. Now, it's it's super cool, though. I can't wait to, to see what you have coming next. I'm excited because anytime that a designer is excited about their work, it shows. If it's a theme you like or if there's something that's really cool in it that you are really excited to show people, I think that that's huge in making a successful game versus here's a theme. Nobody else wants it. So good luck, you know, and and just kind of sticking somebody with something that either they're not really interested in or they just they don't have the passion for it at all. I guess it, it shows. So yeah, I'm know, stoked. A long, a long time ago, I passed on uh, Iron Maiden. They asked me if I wanted it, you know, because they were going to, you know, I'm the rock and roll guy. And uh, and I, I I didn't I wasn't a big Iron Maiden fan, like like you said, you were not. Um, so I was working on that Guardians of the Galaxy layout at the time. So 
a picture of Groot was molded, uh, a molded Eddie head. Oh, God. Wow. <laughs> that would have been pretty sick. Yeah. Because that's what it would have been. It would have been Eddie, for sure, in the middle. I love the Guardians movie when I saw the first film. I'm like, this is really great. I go, I really like this a lot. So so I took it. And, and Groot is fun. Groot yeah. is pretty cool. Is and good. I hear there's another there's another one coming. Yeah. Another movie coming. So. Well, they had the Christmas special too that was not as good, but the music on it was fantastic. the The movie itself was that left yeah. a lot to be desired. Well, but, and that, and that game came out in 2017, John. And there's still, I think they may have just called last, uh, done last call at the factory for that. So there's, you know, yeah, that's a five year run. That's like that's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. to show the popularity mm-hmm. of that game. And I was going down through your list of titles that you've you've designed over over the years. I mean, there are some pretty iconic titles and, and bands and themes that you worked on, everything from, you know, we've already talked about TMNT, Monsters, Guardians of the Galaxy, Aerosmith, Kiss, The Walking Dead, Iron Man, Metallica, X-Men, Tron, and a movie that I just saw on the weekend that just came out with its sequel, Back in 2010, you did Avatar, which I didn't realize as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. You did that one with Lyman, didn't you? Uh, I worked on that one predominantly with Lonnie. And okay. Lyman, was, Lyman was working part-time for Stern and part-time for WMS. Yeah, both of those guys, you know. It was nice to have both of those guys on a project. Mm-hmm. Oh, I bet it was. Those, mm-hmm. are, those are some cool, very, very, very cool titles. I'm always hesitant with music pens. Because even a band that I love more than anything else is going to grate on me after I hear the same song as, as often as I play them four or five hundred times. Like if I have to listen to Blue Oyster Cult one more time, I'm uh, going to put my game on the street. I am so glad that they updated it to where you can change the song or I'll play with headphones on and listen to music. Mm-hmm. Because, again, it especially non-music pens, it accentuates the game. It's I don't know, the rhythm of the music and the rhythm of the game just go nicely together. Yeah. But I was very surprised at how much I enjoyed Aerosmith and forgot how much I liked their music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember They're... when we did uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, we we had the Edgar Winter Frankenstein soundtrack that was, you could pick the movie soundtrack or you could pick the Edgar Winter Frankenstein song to listen to as you played the game. And I grew tired of that song after a while. I can imagine. Is there a band that you would not grow tired of? Tool? I don't think mm. Tool's going to license a pinball machine. If if I could drag along uh, Perfect Circle and his other band, too, with it. No, Tool. You know what? Tool would be interesting because the uh, the graphics, the videos that they recorded for their, for their music videos are just over the top. It would be so cool to use those in the display and in modes. I always think of them as kind of dark lit room type music, though. So I don't think you can have Dwight doing the light show on that one if you do. <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> Poor Dwight. I love Dwight, but yeah. man, he can blind you. Oh. He can blind you. Yeah, I was playing Turtles not uh, just a couple days ago, and I still see the spots. Yeah, <laughs> I I normally play in the dark, and Turtles is one of the ones that I have to turn the lights on because I can't. Uh-huh. It, it was intense. It was a lot going on. Dwight's, Dwight's listening, and he's like, yes, I did it. I did my no, job. No, Dwight, Dwight knows. <laughs> Dwight works so, welding. While he's while he's yeah. programmed, <laughs> I would believe are, it. Are are there any other themes, John? Like favorite themes of yours that you are you you were like you know if they offered me this one I would be in it in a heartbeat. Oh, I, I have a list. One of them just ended up getting made by another manufacturer. I just found out a few weeks ago. Scooby Doo. Oh, I would. Uh, I, yeah. I would take that. I don't know if I want to tell you the, the, the rest of them that I'm thinking of or looking at right now because I don't want to tip the competition. Got it. <laughs> Got it. And there are some there are some amazing oh, ones. Really there. good ones. Really good picks. And some of them are a little little edgy, maybe, you know, where Stern might be afraid. But uh, there's there's one in particular um, that I just think would be over the top and we'd be selling it for years. Hopefully in the next couple of years, you'll see that game. We will just have to wait. Wait and, and see. see. Oh, it's exciting. <laughs> I just need somebody to make a Muppets pinball machine. That's all. That's <laughs> I never thought of that. It's interesting. It would write itself. You know, you could have Animal in the back on the drums. You yep. could have the two old guys up on as the topper. 
heckling you kind of like sort of rage was and oh it would just be great gonzo shooting across the play field it's it would write itself if they can yep. make scooby-doo they can make mustard monsters you know what the heck i mean monsters yeah. sorry they can make muppets <laughs> that's right that's right john we appreciate you coming on so so much i am very excited to see what all rush wins this year i um i think it's going to do really really well and i will preemptively congratulate you because i know you're going to win something on it and just <laughs> thank you for joining us and chatting with us it's been a blast it was a pleasure to join so you awesome. both. Thanks so much, John. So great talking to you. And uh, thanks for sharing all that you did. You really uh, answered so many questions. And boy, I want to play Rush even more now. <laughs> I I got to get this thing. Yep, get on it, Craig Bobby. Get on it. Get on it. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much. And as always, if thank you have you any feedback, much. hit us up. Free Play Pinball Podcast on Facebook. Free Play Pinball Podcast gmail.com. Craig Bobby's talent scout manager, Zach, will take care of you over at the pinball network at gmail.com. And I hope you all have a great night and enjoyed the show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye bye. Take care. Thank you.